Our program is called Truth Encounter. Our subject is Deliver Us from the Evil One. We have been carefully examining the Lord's model prayer. The final petitions remind us of the lion that is on the prowl to destroy our lives, our families, and our nation. Let's join Dave as he uses Thomas Wolfe's exposure of the meaninglessness of life in the fast lane of New York to illustrate the power of the seduction. Life races by. Thomas Wolfe in The Bonfire of the Vanities talks about life in Manhattan. He talks about the highest, most powerful economic life that you can imagine. It's the life that Americans all over this country long for. To be able to eat in the most posh restaurants in all the world. To be able to hobnob with the most beautiful people in all the world. But what Thomas Wolfe, as a Yale-trained Ph.D., is saying, it's just a bonfire of emptiness. And everyone is consumed in it. What he brings out is the fact that nobody cares about their families. People are willing to lie. They're willing to cheat. They're willing to commit violent acts. But nobody really cares about little kids. And nobody cares about husbands and wives. And nobody cares about extended families. And that's what the local church really needs to be. We need to be a family for the fatherless. We need to be a family for single moms and dads that are trying to raise kids. We need to be a family that recaptures the wonder of a nuclear family. I trust with all of my heart that the Holy Spirit will continue to fuel the flames of family living because that's the only way that we're going to be able to be delivered from the evil one. I'd like you to open your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 6. We've been learning how to pray at the feet of our Lord Jesus. We've learned, first of all, that we can address our Heavenly Father as our Heavenly Daddy. The Holy Spirit has brought us near through the shed blood of Calvary. And therefore, you can address God intimately as your Daddy who is in heaven. We learn, second of all, though, that we need to set apart His name. Rather than being part of that cursing, blaspheming world, where the name of God is used as a mistake, as, as a response when you hit your thumb with a hammer, Instead of joining the crowd that curses the Lord, we need to be the crowd that does what we've done today. We shared when we studied that lesson, set apart the Lord's name. Set apart. Make it distinctive. It has all that feel of looking into the Lord's eyes, you might say, and telling Him that we adore Him, that we love Him. And He is a personal God that responds just the way we respond when somebody communicates to us from the depths of their being, I love you. So we not only can address our Father in Heaven as our Heavenly Daddy, but we can also set apart His name as special. And that should be one of the most special things that we do on a Sunday morning. So our Father in Heaven, set apart Your name. Then we start to pray about the conflict that's taking place in the world. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in Heaven. We learn that some of our prayers need to be revolved around the theme that things aren't the way they ought to be. Things are not as they should be in the world. And we need to long for the day. And we started back in the book of Genesis and told how the story of the Bible is a kingdom story. It talks about a God who wanted mankind to rule over His creation. And we talked about how man botched it up and committed a rebellion and sowed the seeds of rebellion that have produced all the agony of death 
and of ugliness and of disease and of rebellion against God. Man walked away from the author of life. We trace that story of his promise, God's kingdom promises, that he would not abandon rebellious mankind, but he would send a deliverer into the world, into the kingdom of darkness, to conquer the evil one that produced the rebellion against him. We talked about how Jesus on the cross won the great victory in the war against the evil one and how in the resurrection He gave us a foretaste of the kind of kingdom power that's going to ultimately be the norm, the way of life during the millennial kingdom and on into eternity. We also talked about this present age where we're living in a time where God is graciously trying to reach out to every one of us. He's not forcing the issue right now. He's not using His omnipotence. He's not using His power to just demand that we bow before Him. Instead, it's the age of what we call grace, the unmerited mercy of God. And God is asking us today to bow before Him willingly. And then we studied last week how God has told us that we can pray to Him and ask Him to deliver us from that time of testing. Lead us not. Lead us not into that time of testing. God will not lead us into a time where He desires for us to fall. God is never the malicious one. He's never the malignant one who's seeking to snuff the life out of us. And so it's very legitimate for us to pray, Father, lead us not into that time of conflict with the evil one. But the Word of God does reveal that God in His omniscience does allow us, just like He allowed His Son, the Lord Jesus, to go through intense times of testing. And in those times of testing, we can be absolutely certain that if the Father has chosen to answer our prayer for deliverance from not being led into that time of testing, if He allows us into that time, then it's only because He knows that we can be stronger. We can be closer to Him we can do some real, strong, victory work against the kingdom of darkness. And that leads us to the final petition of the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from the evil one. One of the most incredible enigmas of the Lord's petition that we need to learn to be delivered from the evil one is this whole business of why is there even an evil one? Why do we need the Lord to be a shield around us? Why do we need Him to protect us? Why is there this evil one? The first mention of the evil one in the whole Word of God is found in Genesis 3. Let's turn there to Genesis chapter 3. It's so strategic in regard to this deliverance from the evil one. Genesis chapter 3 begins like this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? You see, here we are. We've had Genesis chapter 1. It is good, it is good, it is good. That We've often taught you the key phrase of Genesis chapter 1 is it is good. The key reality of Genesis chapter 2 is that God's goodness reaches forth and makes companionship, makes closeness for man and woman. And we end Genesis chapter 2 with, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, let him cling to his wife, and together they shall become one flesh. They were both naked and they were unashamed. It's an age of innocence. It's an age of beauty. It's an age of goodness. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is the most beautiful music, the most beautiful environment, the most beautiful people, the epitome of beauty and goodness. 
In Genesis chapter 3, it's like a lion invades and he's let loose out of his cage and this darkness comes in to all the light of God's creation. Why? You see, when I read to you now, the serpent was more cunning. You, because you're training the Word of God, you jumped all kinds of conclusions because you know that the serpent equals the devil. You know that the serpent equals Satan. And that's where you have the names of this serpent is Satan. That means the adversary. The word Satan would be used in Hebrew to speak of any opponent, any adversary that stood against you. You also know him by his proper name of the devil. That means the slander. And I gave you some of the other literal meanings of this word devil. It means the one who creates controversy through accusation. You've got the picture of someone who, before a court of law, is constantly the prosecuting attorney that's trying to accuse us. He's a slanderer. He's the, the epitome of misrepresentation. That's all involved in this word devil. Another name that's a very colorful name is the word Beelzebub. Hollywood has even made a film, The Lord of the Flies, and some literary pieces have been made, The Lord of the Flies. And the idea there is this was a play on words. Beelzebub means the Lord of the heavens. The Lord of the highest point. Beelzebub is the Lord of the flies. And what it was in Hebrew is this play on words. And they took a title which is a title of an exalted idol and they used it of the God of cow dung, you might say, because the flies would just you know, swarm around cow dung. And it was the Israelites' way of casting spurn upon this pretension to God, to Godhood, that this evil one played. So you've got all that background. You know about Satan. You know about the devil. You know another one of his titles that even the Lord Jesus used. He used the phrase Beelzebub in some of the conflict that he had with the Pharisees over the source of his power. But when the serpent came into the garden in Genesis chapter 3, he did not come into the garden even as the dragon of Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12 picks up on the imagery throughout the ancient world of a great chaos monster, a great dragon. Like in Babylon, he was called Tiamat is his name. I knew it would come. Tiamat. And Tiamat was like a great snake. And Marduk, the god of Babylon, conquered this snake and slew the dragon of the sea and then cut up his body into different sections. And one part of his body became the heavens, another part became the dry land, and another part became the waters that are around the earth. And that was the chaos drama of creation. And Revelation 12 picks up on this, only it identifies this dragon not as being this mythological god of the ancient world but as being the arch rival of god and you've got all that english sense of king arthur and his knights fighting the fire breathing dragon but in genesis chapter 3 that's not the way this that satan is introduced to us instead it says that the serpent was more cunning than all of god's living creatures the serpent is presented as being just one of god's creation very cunning, but just one of God's creations. And he asks a very simple question. Has God really said you can't eat from all the trees of the garden? And then you know how the temptation narrative goes through. Now, as we talk about the origin of evil, there's a couple of things I want to underscore. 
First of all, Genesis chapter 3 does not go into a theological treatise on the origin of evil. The serpent is just there. We don't know where this serpent came from. We don't know where this terrible reality of rebelling against God, where it got started. In Genesis chapter 3, really, we just have one of God's creation who begins to entice Eve to turn away from the Creator. And evil pounces upon mankind. But mankind is responsible. One thing I want you to see is, There's no what we call an etiology of evil. In other words, there's no origin. There's no explanation of its development. There's just a serpent. And that's one of the very first things I want you to realize about the evil one and about evil in the Word of God. You see, it's not like an age. It's not like a moral age. It's not like a disease. Basically, as human beings, we feel if we can find out the beginning of a disease, the cause of the disease, the course of a disease, then we can find a cure for it. In fact, all the AIDS research right now is focused on, can we find the virus? Can we isolate a cause? Can we find the origin? And once we find the origin, then we're well on the way to developing a cure. And we have a tendency to want to treat evil like this. Our society is incredibly naive about evil. We are also incredibly callous to it. We see it so much on TV. We see it so much in the movies. It just kind of rolls by. What our society starts to do, well, why did that happen? What caused it? And we go into all kinds of analysis. What about the family background? What about all the decisions that were made? And we have all these analysis of what happened. I want you to understand something about violence and evil. It doesn't make any sense. Number one, it doesn't make any sense. There's no origin to it. There's no clear-cut origin to evil in the Bible. There's just some hints that I'm going to get to in just a minute. But there's no clear-cut chapter and verse that says this is why it began, this is how it began, and there's a reason God didn't give us that information because He doesn't want us to treat evil as some kind of a disease that we can find out its origin, its course, and then we can get a cure for it. You've got to realize that about evil. The violence that was done to that little boy is a chaotic, disorderly eruption. It's horrible. It's violent. It's chaotic. And it's inside of us. The seeds for those kinds of acts are inside of us. And it doesn't make sense. The second thing I want you to understand is we're responsible. I want to say that again. Because hardly anybody in the United States of America believes anymore that we're responsible. It's everyone else's fault. When a violent deed is done, we look all around. We explain the sociological causes. We explain the psychological causes. We explain the medical causes. We've got all kinds of reasons why evil takes place, except for one thing. A person made a horrible, horrible choice. Now, I want you to look at Genesis chapter 3. The serpent comes to Eve and says, Has God really, really said... You must not eat from every tree in the garden. And he's implying if God were really good, he'd let you eat of all the trees that you want to. Because he didn't, he must not be good. Then the serpent goes on. And when Eve tells him what the punishment would be, when Eve said, you must not touch it or you will die, the serpent lied to her and said, you will not surely die. 
So he told her, first of all, doubt God's goodness. The second thing he said, don't pay attention to God's punishments. You will not surely die. For God knows that the day you will eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, you can be God yourself. You can put yourself on the same level as God. So you have doubt God's goodness, add to God's requirements, doubt the punishments that God gives, and thirdly, make yourself equal to God. And there you have the punishment. I want you to notice something, though. The very next verse. When the woman saw, verse 6, that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gathering wisdom, the dragon made her take the fruit. She couldn't resist him. He overwhelmed her with the fire of his breath. He grabbed her with his tremendous might and he crammed the fruit down her throat. How many of you read that in your text? That's the words and revised, reversed, twisted, contorted version. But you know, that's what almost every one of us think in our society. I couldn't help it. Irresistible forces grabbed a hold of me. I didn't have a chance. This is very instructive. The very first time the serpent went hand-to-hand in combat with a human being, God didn't allow the serpent to come as some great, gigantic, cosmological dragon. In fact, I want you to know something. The, The serpent is gone from this story until God addresses the serpent in the punishment phase. Who is responsible for Adam and Eve's sin according to Genesis chapter 3? Now, Adam and Eve said, Adam said what? All the ladies know what Adam said, right? What did Adam say? Adam said, my wife made me do it. What did Eve say? The devil made me do it. What did God say? You did it. You know, all honesty and all relationship that begins to move towards God begins, it's not everyone else's fault. And I want every one of you in this room to realize this. You've got to realize, first of all, that evil is chaotic and disorderly and don't think you have a handle on it. You don't get a handle on evil. It doesn't make sense. That's number one. The second thing I want you to see is it's not irresistible and you're responsible and so am I. And you're not going to really get a handle on the victory that God can bring until you stop looking out there and blaming on everyone else and you have to look deep in your own heart and say, it wasn't the devil that made me do it. It was when, according to James chapter 1, when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. God cannot be tempted with evil, nor does He tempt any man. But every man, every woman is tempted when they're drawn away of their own lusts. Very important idea as we think about deliver us from the evil one. God does not allow Him to come to us initially. Let me apply to some specific areas, like alcoholism, for example. Your first beer... If you've got alcoholism in your family, if you've got alcoholism in your background, if you take one drink, you're playing Russian roulette. Just the way it is, genetically. Now, the Bible teaches that you have a choice on that drink. You probably have a choice the first six-pack that you take. You probably have a choice for maybe six months sometimes as you party around. But three years later, the choice will be gone. But you had a choice originally. Immorality. 
You have a choice. The first time you go to bed with a person that doesn't belong to you, that you didn't make covenant vows of marriage to, I guarantee you, you'll have a bad conscience. I've seen kids that were raised in homes where everyone was doing it. Their moms and dads were doing it. Brothers and sisters did it. Everybody did it. But the first time they did it, deep inside of their soul, it was wrong. But if you keep doing it, if you keep doing it, the choices start to deteriorate. You know why? Because Satan is a violent, murderous being. And God doesn't allow him to come as the dragon and just overwhelm us. But if you choose to walk into his lair and choose to live into his lair, eventually he wraps his cords of binding illegitimacy and evil around your life. And that's when the choices are gone. Praise God, Jesus specializes in delivering. But I want you to remember, it begins with a choice. And we're responsible for that choice. You say, well, Dave, okay, if Genesis chapter 3 doesn't give us an origin of evil, is there any place in the Bible where we can look? I've heard the accounts as I was a little kid about the morning star and about Lucifer, this great cherub that was living very close to the throne of God who chose to be like God. Where does all that stuff come from? Well, there's two passages in the Bible that we want to look at that outline and sketch out that story. One of them is Isaiah chapter 14. The other is Ezekiel chapter 28. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 14, first of all. Isaiah chapter 14. You see, if we're going to be delivered from this evil one, we need to learn what the Scripture does teach us, not what the occult teaches us about the evil one. Be very, very careful about learning about the evil one from himself. The reason for that is that he's a liar. And liars are not good sources for objective information. So you need to be very careful about learning about the occult from the devil himself. We need to learn about it from the Word of God. Isaiah chapter 14, though, outlines the career of the evil one. In Isaiah chapter 14, and we'll pick it up in verse 12. Now let me give you a background before I read verse 12 to you. The Bible begins in Isaiah 14 talking about a literal Babylonian kingdom. When Isaiah was writing in Isaiah 14, the Babylonian kingdom was just beginning to rise to prominence. And it began to exert its sway over the ancient world. And Isaiah the prophet predicted under the inspiration of Scripture the materialism and the pride and the violence of this world empire. And that's the literal reality that he's talking about. In other words, if you were to ask the prophet Isaiah, who are you talking about? It would be the kings of Babylon. Maybe even a specific king of Babylon, like Belshazzar, the last king that was slain when when Cyrus took Babylon. Maybe that king himself. But as the prophet, under the inspiration of God, begins to talk about this Babylonian king, The Holy Spirit puts words and revelations into His mouth that gives us some hints about realities that are far bigger than just any earthly king. One of the things we learn from the Word of God, especially in the book of Daniel, is that behind the great national forces that are at work, behind the imperialistic forces, there is the supernatural dimension. A great conflict going on between the forces of God and the forces of evil. 
And I believe that that's what's happening in Isaiah chapter 14. We must not lose grip of the literal reality that we're talking about a Babylonian king. But then we can open our heart to receive some hints about the heart, the the gut level reality of what evil is like. And that's where you have a phrase like this in verse 12. How are you fallen from heaven? Oh, morning star. Now that's where the phrase Lucifer comes from. Morning star in Hebrew just means the bright shining one or like the Venus when it's coming up in the morning. Sometimes it just is just unbelievably bright. It's that kind of an idea. It's that phrase. Oh, son of the dawn. Now those titles could be used just of a great oriental king. An oriental king often liked to present himself as being like this shining one, this bright shining one. How have you been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations? So we're talking about a king who viewed himself as the great shining one, the morning star, which is a title that's later used in the Messiah. So he's an anti-Messiah kind of a force. But then he goes on in the next verse and says this, You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars or the angels of God. Stars is often used in the Word of God of the messengers of God, the angels. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. All over the ancient world, they viewed the gods as living in a high lifted up place like the mountains. For example, like in our own culture, the the Sioux held that the mountains of South Dakota were the sacred grounds where the gods dwelt. The Black Hills were their sacred mountains. It's that idea. The Greeks had their Olympus. At Ugarit in Canaan, they had one of the mountains up north in Lebanon. And so the king here is speaking about, I'm going to be take my place sitting among the gods, is the idea. I will ascend above the top of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High God. But you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. Verse 16, those who see you stare at you. They ponder your fate. Is this the man who shook the earth and made kingdoms tremble? The man who made the world into a desert who threw its cities and would not let its captives go free? All the kings of the nation lie in state. Normally kings, in other words, are able to lie in the rotundra and get all the glory of the nation. But this king is going to be thrown out of his tomb. But you are cast out of your tomb like a rejected branch. You are covered with the slain, with those pierced by the sword, those who descend to the stones of the pit, like a corpse trampled underfoot. You will not join them in burial, for you have destroyed your land and killed your people. Now, in this passage, you can delicately see that we're talking about this earthly Babylonian king, maybe even Belshazzar, who was the last king ruling in Daniel chapter 5. Belshazzar didn't lie and stay in the rotundra. The Persian armies massacred him. And we don't even know where he was buried. According to this passage, if it was Belshazzar, he didn't have a normal burial. But what I want you to see is that underneath this passage, there is the seething cauldron of rebellion against God, of lifting himself up. I will be, the key phrase is, I will be like God. Now, what did the serpent challenge Eve to do. If you eat the tree, you will be like God. That is one of the worst 
expressions of evil in all of our life. Instead of bowing before God, instead of humbly worshiping before Him and obeying Him, we say, no, I'm going to be God. I began the message by talking to you about Tom Wolfe's Bonfire of the Vanities. One of its key symbols is a Wall Street broker who uses the phrase, the masters of the universe. On Wall Street, he presents this broker as feeling that he is the master of his universe. He's making a million dollars a year. He lives in an apartment that makes this church building right here look like it's small. And that's the way this story begins. But as the story unfolds, this master of the universe world completely crumbles. And he turns into be just a human being that's weak and who lies and is violent and is immoral. And he's not a master of the universe. The universe just crumbles him up like, a bit, like underneath a big steamroller. Well, that's the epitome. One of my Christian friends told Tom Wolfe, who knows him well, said, Tom, you wrote a Christian book. And Tom Wolfe kind of said, you got to be, no, you got to be kidding. Because that's not, that's not exactly the framework he's coming from. And he said, yes, you wrote an honest book about evil and about the emptiness and the vanity and the destructive reality of saying, I'm going to be the master of the universe, which is a modern way of saying, I'm going to be God. Let's turn to one other passage. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 28. This passage gets even closer to giving us some hints about what happened in eternity past. Ezekiel chapter 28 is talking about not the literal king of Babylon, but the king of Tyre, which Alexander the Great conquered and made kind of a dunghill. But at this time, Tyre was a mighty city when Isaiah was writing. It says in verse 11, the word of the Lord came to me. This is Ezekiel 28, verse 11. Son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You were a model of perfection, full of wisdom or full of skillful living like Proverbs and complete or perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, in the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you, ruby, topaz, emerald, crystallite, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and beryl. It was a jeweler's dream world. The reason for jewels is they picture beauty. They picture wealth. And one day God's going to use all of those things to bring great glory to himself. And this original state of this being, this king, was in the magnificence of all this radiating, sparkling beauty. Your settings and mountings were made of gold and the day you were created, they were prepared. It's very important, whoever this is, was a created being. Not a God, but a created being. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, verse 14, for so I ordained you. And, and Ezekiel, in the beginning of the book, it pictures Ezekiel's vision and pictures the four cherubim that are right around the throne of God. They're like God's most close angelic core. They're like the imperial guard. They're right around his throne, four of them. And evidently this being was one of those guardian cherubs in the beginning. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. And the fiery stones, the courtroom of heaven is pictured in very dramatic, almost like a Star Wars way. 
And it pictures like the heavenly court having like a reflecting pool, kind of like the Washington Monument has, only it's very expansive. And you've got these beautiful stones that are all around it that are radiating splendor and glory. So it's a picture of heaven that the prophet's painting for us here, at least symbolically. Because it says this, You were blameless in all your ways from the day you were created. Now this is the key phrase till wickedness was found in you. Now, where did that wickedness come from? The teenagers asked me that question a few weeks ago. Where did that wickedness come from? The Bible doesn't tell us. Why did it come? The Bible doesn't tell us. What it does tell us is that it didn't begin in the heart of God. God just created the potentiality for it because He created beings that had decision-making abilities, which meant they could choose to go away from Him. But God didn't cause this evil. Till wickedness was found in you, I will be like the Most High. Wickedness was found in this serpent, this dragon that was once an angelic being because Ezekiel's giving us a little hint, pulling back the veil of eternity past and saying that behind this tremendous conflict, there's this great cherub who once was right at the right hand of God till wickedness was found in him. And notice what it goes on to say very quickly. It says, through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God and I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth and made you a spectacle before kings. By your many sins and dishonest trade, you have desecrated your sanctuaries. Come back to the bonfire of the vanities again. That's why I mentioned that. You know, immorality, a lot of you, you know, even jokingly say, well, Dave, you know, you often talk to us about sexual immorality. It must be really on your mind. Well, it is. Not just for me personally, because I've seen the agony of what it produces. It's not because I like to talk about that area. It's because in living with you, I've seen it just literally tear families apart. Over and over again. I've had a wife crying before me because of unfaithfulness on the part of who she thought was her trusted companion and vice versa. A husband that's crying over the illicit relationship of a wife. So it's not because I delight in that area. It's because I've seen it be the poison that sets waves of violence loose in a family and how I praise God for His forgiveness. But oh, how I want to warn you away from that. But you know what the writer just talked to us about here? Not sexual immorality, but material immorality. Dishonesty. And one of the things I'd like us to really develop as we think about being delivered from the evil one, the evil one expresses himself in dishonest materialism of living just for things. And that's what Tom Wolfe's book is about. It's about Manhattan is the epitome of living for things. It's Texans. One of the things you don't like about New York is nobody catches each other's eye. You see, you're used to going into a cafe. Everybody says hello. Somebody will pat you on the back. You know why you still have that? Why we still have that? Because there's still relationships. You know, in Manhattan, you don't have that. Hardly at all. Because everybody's rushing. Everybody's moving. You know why? You've got to make a buck. Tom Wolfe's lead character made a million dollars a year, but he spent a million and a half to live where he lived. So he was really 
in poverty. And so he had to agonizingly keep rushing. You know what that is? That's the satanic materialism. It's part of the kingdom of darkness. If Jesus Christ were here in person today, I think one of the things that he would really talk to us about is when he said, brothers and sisters, when I taught you, my children, when I taught you to pray, deliver us from the evil one. One of the major things I was teaching you, beware of the king of Tyre in your life. Beware of the tyranny of satanically living for dishonest trait. Whenever you're faced with a choice, prosperity or dishonesty, dishonesty and prosperity or honesty and poverty, you always choose honesty and poverty because that's where the value really lies. Whenever we're tempted to live just for things, we make the choice. Materialism or family. Jesus said, let it always be family. And the philosophy of Manhattan tells you exactly just that. But it's a bonfire that's consuming itself. And so the Bible gives us some hints and incredibly it tells us in the very beginning, illicit living for wealth was part of the intrinsic realities of the satanic character. Just to remind you a few things about Satan's career. We've looked at the temptation in the garden. Remember David being tempted to number the people. There's pride again, depending upon human resources instead of upon God. Remember Job. We have Satan's role as the accuser and as the prosecutor. And Satan comes before God and says, God, Job doesn't love you. He's just a materialist. It's how it all ties in together. What Job was accused of is materialism, a materialistic relationship with God. Beware of that in our own life. You see, what Satan says is, Job only loves you because you give him health and wealth and prosperity. If you allow me to take it all away, then he'll curse you. So God, because he wanted to demonstrate to all of us and to all of creation that there could be legitimate, gracious, loving companionship A relationship built not on I scratch your back, you scratch mine, but a relationship built on that mysterious choice of I just love you. God says, Satan, you're not going to understand it, but Job just loves me. And so God took away the parameters and let Satan have his way. The book of Job is a proclaiming testimony. Job loves God because he loves him not because God does good things for him. And then you have the story of Joshua the high priest, a story you probably don't remember in Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. The accuser before the throne of God says, Joshua can't represent you. He can't be your chosen one. And God says, why not? And Satan says, because all of his clothes are unclean. He's a dirty, sinful, rebellious man. And God strips Joshua the high priest and clothes him in radiating garments of white. And God says, Joshua, clothed in the garments that I give him, is worthy to be my priest. And the clothes are given as a gift, not as a reward for meritorious work and effort. And it's a reminder as we close that Satan accuses us before the throne of God. Satan tries to get us involved in living for things, to get involved in that bonfire of the vanities. 
Satan accuses us before God and says, God, they're unworthy to be your children. And Jesus Christ, according to 1 John, is at the right hand of the Father. And he's saying, all he does, like I've shared with you often many times, he just puts up his hands and Satan must stop. The nail-pierced hands of Jesus and the power of his resurrection make us clean and give us new garments. When we pray, deliver us from the evil one. We need to remember, first of all, that evil doesn't have a clear origin in the Scripture, only some hints. So don't think we can explain it. Don't think we can get a handle on it. Second of all, we're responsible. Thirdly, in the hints that the Scripture does give us of what was at the essence of the evil one, this fallen angel when he fell, pride and Ezekiel and Isaiah present not sexual immorality, as often the church has done, as being the epitome or the essential nature of the evil one. That's only part of him. But a far deeper part is this illicit craving for wealth. So much so that we'll be dishonest. So beware. Know the power of your enemy. Don't underestimate his power. But run to the Savior who's much more powerful and much more mighty than anyone we could ever imagine.